0: This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing.
1: Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. Today's show is being recorded just as the news filters in about Fausto Gorsini's passing from COVID-19. And we want to take a moment just to remember Fausto as well. Obviously a big part of the MotoGP family with success as a rider and also a team manager. He was a two-time world champion in the 125 class. As a team manager, he won three world championships as well as a MotoE World Cup. And uh, we just want to take a moment for East of us just to have a small memory David, I'm um, starting with you. Um, obviously, David, uh, first of all, you were in Valencia in 2011. That was just after Marco Simoncelli had died. And, uh, we saw a lap of honor for Marco. And then pretty soon after that, we also saw the Grassini team win with Michele Pirro. It was pretty powerful for everyone that was in the paddock at that stage.
2: Yeah, exactly. Especially as this was, um, I mean, it was the second time that we'd, uh, that, that the Grassini team had suffered. Tragedy. Obviously, he lost Arjiro Cato in two thousand and three at Suzuka, and then to lose Marco Simoncelli as well at uh, at Sepang uh, previously. Um, as the, the Paolo Simoncelli, Marco's father, asked for casino, which means you know a noise and, and and a riot. So there was like a riot of um, uh, uh, of noise to 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 celebrate his his death and that. For me, I, I thought that was a really, really fitting, uh, fitting tribute. And you sort of feel a little bit uh, sorry for the Grassini family that they're not going to be able to celebrate their own father's death in the same uh, in the same way. I mean, I recently lost my father, and it was uh, it was it's a very strange strange time to actually lose um, uh, lose a loved one. So it's uh, it's very difficult. Uh, but for me, I mean, one of my favourite memories of, um, of Fausto Grissini is is that. Uh, is the racing? I mean, obviously, coming from the Netherlands or living in the Netherlands, is uh, seeing um, uh, Fausto Grassini help Loris uh, Caporossi steal the uh, the one two five world championship from Hans Spahn, um when they uh, all those Italians on one to, on their one two fives ganged up on Spahn to slow him up so that Caporossi would win the title. Which is um, uh, there's sort of uh, there's footage of that on uh, on YouTube, and I would encourage everyone uh, to go uh, seek that out.
1: Yeah and obviously Neil Morrison we always come to you whenever we're looking for a historical perspective on where riders stack up Dave teased it up nicely there for you as well because when you look at Fausto's career as a rider obviously we've come into the paddock and seen him as a team manager but he was a double world champion
3: Yeah he was a really really handy one-two-five rider back in the day um, double world champion as you mentioned at the start of the show um, and came up against you know some of the um, most exciting, fastest young talents around back in the uh, the late eighties. I mean, he um, was teammates and uh, competitors with the likes of Luca Cadalora, who obviously went on to become a five hundred cc Grand Prix race winner. Um, teammates with Loris Caporossi as well in Caporossi's uh, championship-winning years in one two five category in nineteen ninety and uh, nineteen ninety one. Caporossi obviously went on to do great things in Moto GP, um, and you know, Fausto had two championships, um, both with uh, Italian manufacturer Gurelli, um two impressive uh two impressive seasons in 1985 and 87 and the second of which i mean he came agonizingly close to a clean sweep of the championship he won every single race bar the final one and he crashed out in the final race uh what was the portuguese grand prix then in uh, harama i think it was um but he was yeah basically run one race away from complete glory um i think it would have been something like 10 race wins out of 10 which would have been Almost unprecedented for the one-two-five class. So, uh, yeah, he was uh, he was a really fast rider back in the day, and um, you know, obviously, I wasn't really around um, uh, in the paddock at that time. But um, just reading some of the uh, some of the reaction to Fausto's passing this morning, um, you know, our colleague Matt Oxley was commenting he would have been in the paddock at that time and said that um, he always noted that Fausto. Um, Reacted to someone like Caparossi coming in, a younger Italian coming into his team, and he reacted, you know, with good grace. And um, as David mentioned in that 1990 season, um, you know, some riders would possibly um, be affronted by a new, younger talent from the same country coming into their team and and racing against them and possibly win the championship. But I think it was a testament to Fausto that he actually was on Caparossi's side and, and wanted him to win, was willing him to win, went as far as. Messing hand spans racing Australia up to help him win. So, um, yeah, I think that was a measure of the man and a measure of his uh, riding capabilities as well. You know, the honours speak for themselves.
1: Yeah, and uh, Neil, obviously you mentioned the successes there, particularly that season where he won almost every race. We didn't really see dominance like that at that stage, but we did see it in the 250 class when Grassini had Dejiro Kato on the bike. And obviously, Adam Wheeler, for you, you were a young, fresh-faced, idealistic journalist at that stage. Obviously, you're a very <laughs> cynical man. Now, you've still kept the fresh-faced looks, though, obviously. But uh, when you came into the paddock at that stage, that was when Grassini stepped up from the 250 class into the 500s well, the MotoGP class on a 500 and then obviously Kato with the V5 as well. So that was really whenever the team made that transition and they've been firmly established in the Premier class ever since
4: yeah that's right steve i think it's um important to remember it's easy to forget actually you know in in the five years that Grassini had been running the aprilia effort you know how much of an impact he had and his team had uh, at the time you know coming right at the end of tobacco sponsorship and then transitioning quite well into that large title sponsor of telefonica movie star i mean uh the team had very much like a burgeoning star in the form of Cato, of course you know getting a couple of podium results uh, in his first season and then looking very much like uh you know, maybe the best Japanese rider would see you know in the modern era. Um But then you know he had a succession of other other riders. I mean, you know, from Marco Malandrini, Tony Elias, Cesar Jibonau. I mean, there was uh, quite a queue of of success there. Uh, so, you know, right up to Jorge Martin, you know, taking the world championship in in the last couple of years. I think you know it, it was always uh, nice to see him. Nice for one of a better word, but celebrating. Success on the track. I mean, uh, to say someone has passion for the sport, it seems such a cliche and it's used so often. But, um, you know, you can tell that he was a man who really lived, lived for his racing. So, uh, you know, through his efforts as a racer and also into team management, I mean, he probably ran the most successful satellite team in MotoGP at that point. Um, you know, it's, uh, it was, it's been a hell of a career, I think, in, in, in the paddock and the sport overall.
2: Yeah, I actually uh not so long ago wrote, wrote a thing about uh, the success of satellite teams. And uh, going back, I looked at all of the uh, satellite teams in the MotoGP era, and it was really quite interesting going back and seeing exactly how much success uh Grissini had during uh, uh, during that period, uh, just how important that actually that, that that team was. Um but it's also I mean one of the most interesting things about uh Grissini is is I mean that he truly came from another era in the fact that you know he only ever raced in one two fives he never moved up to two fifties. This was a period when you had riders it was just after Angel Nieto really um where you had the specialists people would specialise in a particular class you know there was a one two five specialists and Nieto obviously, you know, uh, raced in the 50s and 80s and, and, and various other classes. Um, you had people who would stick in 250s um, uh, and not try and go straight through to, to, to 500. So it was um, uh, it, it was an interesting era.
3: And just to add to what you said there, Dave, about uh, Foisto's team and model GP, I mean, I think uh, his riders. Uh, Finished second in the MotoGP Championship from 2003 through to 2005 with uh, Gibranoy twice, Malandri once and I think in 2006 Malandri was fighting for the championship again um, for most of that season. Um, So I mean that's a measure of just uh, how strong that team was, it's a satellite team yet um, it was pretty much the strongest Honda team at that time pretty much consistently outperforming the factory squad. Um, and just to, to go back to Cato's death, I mean, I remember watching um, that season very closely as a fan. Um, and I, I, you know, I struggle to remember a more emotionally charged race than Welcome 2003, you know, the, the first race after Cato had died, which Jabernow won, and which Fausto and his whole squad showed unbelievable strength to not just be there on the grid, but to put basically a race winning bike under uh underneath sette gibbernau who rode you know out of this world probably the race of his life um and that was a great that was a great um honor i think to the cattle who just died so yeah lots of lots of great memories um of forest time in the paddock and um yeah just a real a real shame a real tragedy that um yeah that he didn't manage to pull through
4: and i think you know just before we move on quickly i think you know, for some people, it's hard to understand why MotoGP is existing in this kind of bubble of restrictions and, and um, you know, uh, obviously closed circuits, limited fans. I mean, it, you know, COVID-19 you can see barely touches some people and it utterly wrecks the families of others. So it's, uh, I mean, it almost goes without saying, but uh, you can have a ride. I think quite caught it during the winter. And, you know, he said he had a couple of low weeks, but then got straight back to training. So, you know, yeah, MotoGP isn't quite, you know, what everybody ex- knows of it or has experience of it. But, um, until, you know, we get sort of in a better state or the world gets in a slightly better state, then, you know, you just have to be careful. So that, on that note, I guess we could probably talk about something
2: else. <laughs> Uh, I was just going to say because I just pulled up my spreadsheet. I'm sorry to um, uh, take away from your excellent point. Because uh, yeah, I mean, Fausta Grassini demonstrates why we have all of these restrictions in place. We don't want uh, we don't want it happening to anyone else. Uh, but um, so for the period between 2003 and 2020, um, uh, Grassini Honda team scored 55 podiums and uh, 14 wins, um, which was you know simply the the, the best satellite the best. Performance of any satellite team uh, throughout the MotoGP era which is just an incredible uh, result i mean the the, the second uh, or behind them are the Pons Honda team and the uh, Tech 3 Yamaha team um so yeah it's it, it it's really quite um it, it's an incredible legacy that he leaves behind
1: yeah, crack team, and we saw that with, as I said earlier, three world titles, over 50 Grand Prix wins, and also success in the Moto E-Class. So, Festo obviously has left a great legacy as both a rider and a team manager. And Neil, you mentioned it earlier on about his time as basically being the leading Honda team. But uh, obviously, the big news this week in GP was that we did have the unveiling of the 2021 Honda team, the Repsol Honda team, Mark Marquez, Pol Spagaro, and uh, a lot of news coming from that launch.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Steve. Um, the Repsol Honda launch was probably the most eagerly awaited launch of them all. Um, this winter solely because it was basically our first chance to, uh, to speak to Mark Marquez since I was asking David about this earlier since the Andalusian Grand Prix uh, last July. Um, because while Mark has made himself available for a couple of TV interviews and one or two interviews that his team later released, um,
2: I, I asked, I asked about that. And as far as I know, uh, and could find out, um, the only interview he did was with Dazon, uh, Dazon or the, you know, the, the, the Spanish TV broadcaster, um, which obviously has a very, very, close links to Dorna, so there must have been some pressure through there as well. But I don't think he did any magazine interviews, he didn't do any website interviews, Um, I don't even think he did any other TV, uh, any at the end of the TV interview. So there was an absolute radio silence around him, which I found uh, mistaken and strange.
3: Yes, it was quite strange, and therefore the uh, the launch was our first chance to basically not just see Marquez and see physically how he appears and how he looks, but uh, to hear his thoughts. Um, and, um, yeah, as David said, the fact that there had been basically a, a shutter pulled down from Camp Marquez over the over the winter months uh, meant that we were all left to, to speculate what was actually going on. And I think even certain members of the Repsol Honda team were, were not really aware of uh, what was going on with Mark. It was all kept very secretive, but he did uh, provide us with uh, quite a lot of, of very interesting information.
1: Yeah, and uh, David, one of the big things that we heard from Mark was that he did say that the original aim was to be back in time for the Qatar test. That's now already changed because he's going to have medical checks that week. Now the aim is to be ready for the Qatar Grand Prix. If he's not ready for Qatar, he'll be ready for Qatar 2. If he's not ready for Qatar 2, he'll be ready for Portimao. So it really is a case of still being that moving goalpost.
2: Yeah, but I think that's more a change in um Marquez's sensibility so it's just it's um one of the more interesting things he said was like you know before uh if you can ride or if there's not you know even the the, the, the tiniest chance that you can ride you're going to try and ride um and he one of the things that he learned was that he had to be patient that there were you know to, to to look at the bigger bigger picture i think that he had a fantastic spanish quote which was um uh that there are lots of races but you only have one body um, and so he was going to give him time to heal, and he's listening to doctors. He's not going to, uh, he's not asking, um, uh, m- Make sure I can get on the grid. uh, You know, I can get on a bike as soon as possible. He's asking when is it going to be safe for me to get back on a bike again, which is uh, a different attitude. So he's taking it step by step because I think, I mean, it was I called it. I wrote about it a couple of days ago and called it a lost. You know, a a lost year. It was genuinely a a lost year for Mark.
1: Yeah, and uh, Adam. One of the things that he did talk about was the strain that he felt mentally as a result of the injuries as well. This is the first time... Obviously, Mark's had injuries in the past. He's used to carrying knocks, but this is the first time where he had that real spell on the sidelines, had to look at other people, ride his bike, had to just look at races that he wasn't in. And he did talk a little bit
4: about how tough that was for him as well. Yeah, you do. I mean, while the debrief that he gave to the press was quite revealing. Um, I mean, he was coy on certain subjects, like we've said um, with the exact nature of his physical condition, even though I think he said he had struggled to lift even like a three kilo weight um, with the arm. Uh, there were, other hints of how much of a struggle it's been but then it's been the third winter in a row where he's having to do some sort of rehab and i do wonder how much that's kind of invigorated his his desire or spirit for racing but as he also pointed out in his discourse he still has i think three more years left on his contract after 2021 so you know he's not going anywhere soon um and i think you know for for a competitive animal like mark it's just gonna uh fuel a bit of the fire really to get going again um I did sorry, sorry, Steve. I did find it kind of interesting. You know, some some journalist asked him about uh, you know the the blame game. Um, you know, I think uh, David, you actually put the question to him whether he felt like uh, you know there was anybody to blame. But then in, in in Spanish, he he kind of talks a bit more about it and said that you know Dr. Mia, who performed the original operation after his broken arm in Jerez, one um, was it the Andalus Grand Prix or the Grand Prix of Spain, or, or yeah, I can't remember the, the name. Yeah,
2: yeah, it was the Spain.
4: Yeah, I mean, so he performed the original operation. And, and since, um, in a lot of the speculation and rumor about why his arm wasn't fixed very well, I mean, Mark pretty much dismissed that straight away and said, Dr. Mir is still my doctor. Um, and it's somebody that he has a lot of trust with still. Um, he chose to get the operation done with somebody else, but um, he was very kind of complimentary about Mir while. Explaining that, you know, maybe Dave, you can remember better the answer he gave you, but the blame game, uh, was that he wasn't keen to throw any daggers, put it that way.
2: No, I mean, he basically said, um, uh, you know, we win as lean, uh, win as a team, we lose as a team. And so, you know, you, you can't blame anything. In fact, uh, we can actually hear what Mark had to say, uh, himself.
5: No, in the end, it's a decision of everybody. I mean, when we won a title, we always speak about the team about the people around me and uh, and when we did a mistake we we must to speak about everything of course uh, the last decision uh, is mine uh, but then uh, when me onda and uh, and my team receive a, a good feeling from the, the doctors then of course um, you try because uh you know the riders and you know how are the riders and uh, if uh, if if they say you can try you will try and and i feel that i was able to try but uh what i feel was not the what my body need uh and and this is the the main the main thing but uh in that in that point um i don't want to push uh the doctor or I mean, we take many, many decisions, uh, and we take many, many risks on the past already with another injuries, and uh, and sometimes is when it's going a good way, uh, they did a miracle, and uh, and there was something that there was not human, but uh, but yeah, this is another experience for me on my personal side that I will use on the on the future. But uh, I will take the risk again in the future. I don't know if it's in the same way or not inside of a injury. Uh, then, of course, on the track, I would take the, the same risk. But, uh, but yeah, we did a mistake to, to write in, uh, in Jerez. But the problem is that if, I, if we don't write in Jerez and we write in Breno, it was the same mistake. I mean, uh, because still the bone was not uh, any consolidation in two weeks. So uh, so yeah, in the end, uh, who did the mistake? Every Everybody together i mean uh, of course uh, on the professional and personal side i learn uh, many things and uh, just to
1: take on from what mark was saying we've got a question from one of our patrons and uh, donald's asking us whether or not we've seen the last of mark and uh he, he obviously says that he'd be very disappointed not to see mark fulfill his potential in MotoGP. gp personally i think it's it's a bit of a stretch to say an eight-time world champion with you know 90 grand prix wins hasn't fulfilled his potential donald but uh, in light of the first question, I want to ask all of you what you think about, have we seen the best of Mark, and will he be able to come back? David, I'll start with you.
2: I um, honestly, I thought before the launch, I thought he wasn't going to come back, well, or not perhaps not to the same level after the launch i think this feels like the same learning moment that he had in 2015 when he lost that championship by trying to win everything from the from from the start of the season um and what he learned there was to be a bit patient and i think this experience has been exactly the same you know like uh, like he said you know you've only got one body there's lots of races but you've only got one body Uh, and he said you know i'm going to come back Uh, When the doctors say that I'm uh, fit to start training again, I'll start training again. When the doctors say um, uh, I can start uh, riding a MotoGP bike again, I'll ride a MotoGP bike again. In fact, he said, um, even if the doctors told me tomorrow I can ride a MotoGP bike, I wouldn't because I'm not strong enough, um, because I'm not in the right condition to do it, the the right physical condition. So I think that, to me, I found uh, very, very interesting. I think he has gained a sense of perspective um and again he's learned like i mean i remember the year against Dovichosa where he either finished first or second this was more of, of perspective of understanding that you don't win a championship uh, in the first race in the same way that you don't win a race in the first corner you win a championship over the course of a season and you win uh, multiple championships you know through through the course of, of various seasons so i think uh i think this is going to give him a little bit more maturity so yeah i mean he's maybe not this year but next year i think he becomes the most important um uh i, I think he becomes you know he becomes the favorite again he becomes the uh, um uh, he becomes the main the main contender
4: adam what about you It's um, a curious state of affairs, Steve, because I think if he comes back, uh, he's got the double header at Qatar to uh, to cope with. You know, he hasn't been back on the bike for, what, eight, nine months. Uh, He's got to get a hand on the Honda. Uh, The fitness is not going to be anywhere near he would want it to be. Um, Then he's got two weeks until going to Portimao, which is a circuit he's never raced at for round two, round three, I should say. Um, But if he somehow makes it back for Qatar one, then he's got a full month to work on his physical condition until he gets to the scene of the crime of last year in Hareth for round four. So theoretically uh, he could turn up, try and score any kind of points that he could before becoming to Hareth. And you would think he would have some sort of orientation or some sort of semblance of strength to, to really show what he can do again Um, as in terms of whether he's a spent force. Absolutely not. Um, But you know, if he crashes on the shoulder again, and knowing Mark, he will crash because that's a certain degree of what he does, isn't it? I mean, if Andre de Vizioso crashes, it's something that's highly unusual, whereas Mark, when he's finding that limit, um, is something we see quite frequently. So that's going to obviously bear something on his mind, and it could be change the way he approaches grand prix weekends um will he be the same sort of rider if he's trying not to push those limits that's what we all want to see but you know uh, for a guy of his talent you know he's going to be back winning races very soon and uh, neil david was
1: mentioning the patience has mark just spent all of this time watching the wire to learn from lester
3: (laughs) (laughs) uh he may well have done yes um although i wouldn't say that he is that patient certainly not as patient as uh Who you were referring to, Steve in the wire. Um, I think, um, yeah, I think it was really interesting listening to what you had to say. Um, it was well reasoned and well thought through. Um, but essentially what Mark said is that he's missing the Qatar test because he has a a checkup, a doctor's checkup in the middle of March. And if that goes well, basically the doctors will tell him that they are pretty happy with the bone consolidating properly. And you kind of think that once. He gets the okay with that say that checkup does go well in march then he can really get back into some form of intense physical rehabilitation you know building the shoulder muscles up again the, the arm muscles because it was quite quite telling how um you know one shoulder looked very very thin and kind of frail compared to the other um when we spoke to him on monday um so yeah i kind of buy into what adam was saying there Yeah, Qatar might be a ride off maybe Portimao as well but even if Mark comes back at Rez or comes back for the following race I think at Le Mans I mean that's what five races in I don't see anyone on the current grid um, putting together a string of five race wins from the first five races or four race wins from the first five races I, I I kind of foresee the championship being similar to last year in terms of you know one week one guy strong another week another guy strong maybe Mears picking up fourth places and third places here and there so you know I think when Mark does come back and he is basically you know fighting fit again or, or basically in some way competitive to race these guys I don't think the championship will be completely written off I think you know there may be a 60 point deficit or 70 point deficit you know something that's still achievable with the championship being as long as it is this year so um yeah i think we'll definitely see him back winning races again this year the championship i'm not sure about but i think he's definitely going to be a name that the others have to look out for
2: i um, mean my question to you guys is uh 2021 do we think he could be 2021 champion no
4: I I mean, even if he turns up and rolls and gets points, you know, uh, I mean, like we say, that's the fantastic thing. Like Neil said, it's hard to see one rider being dominant and stretching away and building a lead in the points. But um, that also reveals the fact that Mark's got quite a bit of work to do. Uh, He's not simply going to roll in, be 70, 80 percent and be able to streak away with races. Um, I think he's going to find, you know, maybe a couple of feisty new competitors to go up against. Adam, can
1: you, can you stop saying Mark Rowland? Because we don't need to see that again. We just need to see him getting on the bike. Uh, for, for me, Dave, I, I said on the show a couple of weeks ago that I'll put my neck on the line and say he'll win it. That was only because none of the rest of you would. <laughs> Mark's the only alien. He's the only one that can go out and do what Mark does. And we've seen him dominate seasons when it's been competitive in the class. I think every time he lines up on the grid when he's fully fit, everyone knows he's the man to beat. Obviously, like Adam said as well, it's a new era now. You've got new rivals, guys they have got more confident. But for me, Mark's still Mark, still Mark until we see that he isn't.
3: I think we can look back at uh, the first test of 2019 and maybe take one or two things from that. Uh, that was after Mark had, had, or I think it was two months after Mark had, had pretty aggressive, serious surgery on his left. Shoulder, the one that kept dislocating towards the end of two thousand and eighteen, and I think he more or less um, was gradually trying to build his shoulder back up after the operation, which was in December two thousand and eighteen. So he had more or less two months of re- rehabilitation. He got back on the the bike at Sepang day one. He was fastest. Admittedly, he only did twenty nine laps, um, and then I think he struggled, you know, with pain and with fatigue on day two. But by the final day, he had posted quite a number. Quite a decent number of laps and then three weeks later we went to Qatar. And, um, he was pretty much saying he was ready to fight for race wins. And then obviously he went on that insane run of just, you know, finishing first or second in every race bar one that year. Um, now obviously there's a few differences with this injury. He's been out for longer. This injury was definitely more serious. Um, and there's a few more unknowns in that, you know, maybe the bike direction will have gone in a, in a direction that he is unsure of, or he's not really that happy with or comfortable with, but. Uh, If there's one thing that he's shown us in the past, he is incredibly adept at being able to change his riding style in a very short space of time. He knows how to work his, basically how to, to get the best out of the bike by adjusting himself. And I think, yeah, like even if you give him four or five races where he's physically quite a bit below par, I still don't think he's going to be finishing at the back of the grid. I still think, you know, maybe he be finishing in the points maybe higher because mark marquez at at 80 85% i still think is capable of that to be honest
2: i think the big difference here between uh, 2021 and 2019 is in 2019 he had maybe two months where he couldn't train properly but he was already starting to to to, to do some um, exercise he was able to actually build some strength in his in his arm and in his shoulder uh, even quite quickly, you know, after after th- I think three or four weeks, I think after th- I think it was something like three weeks where he couldn't move it at all, and then he could start doing it again. He hasn't actually been able to train his shoulder now since I don't know September, maybe maybe a little bit earlier. Um because he just hasn't had, you know, he hasn't had the bone strength. He hasn't had the strength in the bone uh, to be able to uh, actually do anything about it. And in fact, that was one of the things which he said he found most difficult was the fact that that period in sort of October, September, October, uh, when he could feel there was something wrong in his arm, um, but the doctors couldn't feel, any, they couldn't find anything with it, and that turned out to be this this, this bone infection, um, which caused him all the problems and uh, meant he had to have a third op. So I think he has uh, i think he's lost a lot lot more this time around than 2019 for me i i mean uh, like i expected to be winning races by the end of um, uh, 2021 but i don't think he's going to win the championship this year i don't think he's going to be racing until i mean you know maybe portimao maybe jerez um, and he's going to take a few i think he's going to take a few races to get back to something approaching his old level um, and by then, I think it's going to be too late. But I do think that um, you know, I'm, I would go out now and put money on him to win the 2022 championship. No worries.
1: I'd be honest, Dave. I'm going out to, to put money on, on the 2021 championship because none of your predictions have ever come tr- <laughs> true, and that's a sure sign that Marks will win this championship. But I, I want to ask you all about the other side of the Repsol box as well, because obviously Paul's moved from KTM to the Repsol Honda team. Is there any rider on the grid that you think has more pressure and has been more affected by uh, COVID-19 and losing the winter test schedule?
4: If there's a rider with more pressure, uh, for me, as we said before, Maverick Vinales, um, is the leader now, or the de facto leader of the factory Yamaha team. You know, I think he's got to step up and show that he's actually championship uh, material. But uh, coming back to Paul, Steve, I mean, um, you know, I really rate him. I think, uh, you know, he's an aggressive uh, rider, also a smart one that really knows how to build the kind of team ambience. Um, You know, we saw at KTM directly into Repsol Honda. Maybe that was a little bit of the issue that Jorge Lorenzo had. Uh, I think, you know, he's going to be probably the strongest rival or teammate, you know, I mean, since the early days of Danny Pedrosa when Mark came into the team. So it'll be an interesting dynamic there. And, uh, you know, we were talking because also this week, you know, the LCR Honda team was launched. Alex Marquez, you know, in his new colors, um, taking Cal Crutchlow's kind of position for 2021. And, um, you know, it'd be curious to see how Alex Marquez does against Paul Espargerol or even, you know, Taka Nakagami. Um, for me, I just think Paul, yes, he carries the pressure, but, um, in my book, I'm ready to put the money on the table now and say he'll do better in the championship.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, Ad. You're too early to say that because I've got that as our questions whenever we're talking about the LCR team. So let's focus on Paul for now. Um, Dave, what's your thoughts on how Paul's going to stack up against Mark? And obviously, if Mark isn't able to race those early season races, Paul's got a lot of pressure on his shoulders. Then,
2: yeah, but I mean, Paul has had a lot of pressure in the past four years. You know, I mean, he's had, he's basically had to uh, uh, push the KTM project pretty much on his own for i mean you know he was with Bradley Smith for two years and they worked together on that um and uh, then he had Johan Zarko uh, uh, for uh, as a year for a um uh, a, as a teammate and you know Zarko just completely had you know His head went. He had absolutely no interest in riding the bike. had no interest in trying to fix the bike. Uh, Just couldn't get his head around it. Uh, And so Paul carried that project for that year. And then Brad Binder was a much more competitive uh, teammate, but he was a rookie. So he didn't have as much uh, there. And basically, you know, KTM had three rookies last year. Uh, so, or almost three rookies. I mean, yes, um, did Miguel Oliveira already had a a year of experience? Um, but it was, it was a much more difficult, it was a much more difficult situation for, uh, uh, for, for Paul. It was Paul who was pushing that. So I think he can carry, uh, the, the pressure. I think that, um, Paul is, his riding style is much more suited to the honda than certainly than jorge lorenzo's was for example uh lorenzo you know loved the smooth bike and this is this is the polar opposite of of a smooth bike so yeah it's gonna it's certainly going to suit him um and obviously with honda being out um the honda or with marquez being out mark marquez being out honda have ha- had to change the bike they've made it a little bit more user-friendly and i think the bike is going to be more user-friendly this year uh, as well and that's going to help
1: uh, Neil, I, I come to you last actually just because I want you to take us back to when Mark and Paul were rivals in the Moto2 class Because obviously they came up through the ranks, whether it was from Spanish Championship into Small Capacity Race and into Moto2 as rivals for one another uh, And then obviously their careers have taken very different paths from when both of them have moved up to the Premier class
3: Exactly, yep, those guys have been uh, you know rival, rivals from childhood Um, As you said, Steve, going right the way back, sometimes very fiery and intense rivals. I mean, they both fought for the 2010-1-2-5 championship. There were heated, heated battles in 2012. I think there was even a a case where didn't Paul threaten to take um, a result to court when he was knocked off in Barcelona in 2012? um you know that got pretty ugly that uh, that fight and okay the, the championship didn't go down to the final race but you know it was a pretty hotly contested and, and fiery battle between the pair of them all year um but obviously they've gone they've grown up a bit and uh, a lot of water has gone under the bridge since then um but yeah i think paul was, was certainly making the right noises uh on monday um i liked it when someone asked him you know is this year basically going to be devoted to learning the bike and, and getting up to speed with Honda and he was like absolutely not Like uh, that's not why I've been hired he's under no illusions that he's been hired to fight regularly for top five positions to stand on the podium to maybe even win races and uh, possibly to fight for the championship and that was what he was talking about um, so it's a massive massive order to jump on the Honda have five days of testing and to be at that level from the very start um, but the KTM maybe isn't that different you know if there's one bike you would want to have experience off before jumping on the Honda I think it would be the KTM um, and you know Paul Adam can testify to this um, but you know Paul's sort of enthusiasm and, and, and basically approach to get into a team I think is the absolute right one he's going to go there as motivated as they come and um, yeah I think it's going to be a really interesting battle um, Paul against Alex Marquez, maybe even Paul against Mark Marquez. Um, yeah, I think I can see Paul doing some good things this year.
1: Yeah, we talked to Michael Laverty as well, former MotoGP rider, current commentator for BT Sport, just to get his thoughts on both all Honda riders, whether he thinks Mark's approach can really be that patient approach and also his thoughts on what he expects from Paul Espargaro.
6: When I think about a slightly compromised Mark, it does make me pause I think earlier in his MotoGP career, it would have been a big hurdle if he was riding with the thought in the back of his mind that he couldn't afford to crash because back then he was still figuring things out and he did crash, he did push the boundaries to be able to win races. Whereas now, when Mark's on form, I think he he kind of has a little bit in reserve. He's he's at such a high level, but being off the bike for such a long period, will he be naturally just as as high a level as he was before the injury? And yeah, not riding with your natural riding style where you just throw everything at it as Mark does, uh, having to think that he can't afford to crash, there is that extra worry, and it will it will play on him. So yeah, I don't think Mark's going to come back immediately for sure at the level he was before the injury. But I've no doubt the skill the man has and and his ability to find those limits and pull it back a little bit. I think if he can, um, if he can. He'll probably be still top five, top three, um, riding at eighty five percent with um, is to his normal level. But I still, yeah, I think there's quite a few question marks, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing him back on a bike. But I want to see the old Mark return, the one that pushes the front and and gets away with um, absolute heroics. But um, yeah, until we see him on a bike, it's going to be a difficult one to judge. As for the rest of the Honda boys, I think Paul Espagaro should be the favourite. Given his riding style on the KTM, everything stacks up to say that he should be really strong in that package. He should be winning races and um, and battling for for podiums and being the top Honda rider throughout the season. But it is always tough whenever someone changes manufacturer. And Paul spent a long time in the KTM and before that the Yamaha, which never really suited his attack and riding style. If if you're and fair with Paul's level I think he's probably been better off late on the KTM and maybe the Honda will suit him more but looking at how Alex was at the end of last season from Aragon uh, in Valencia he just looked so much better on the bike those, those last few rounds and uh, Taka was really strong so I think you've got three potentially strong riders there if Mark isn't at his 100% rate from the round one so um, yeah I'm looking forward to seeing Paul making that transition in these early uh, tests in Qatar it's one of those tough things we always talk about how how difficult the Honda is to ride so we're going to get a good reference now Paul jumping on it as the third MotoGP bike he gets to ride from arguably the easiest which didn't suit his style to a tough one that he's developed to make it into a race winner and now on to the Honda which is a race winner but it requires that uh, unique kind of riding style that attacking style so it's going to be exciting and I can't wait to see it.
1: Obviously There was another Honda launch this week as well. We saw the launch, the LCR Honda. You mentioned it briefly there, just in terms of where you see the pecking order between Alex Marquez and Paul. But I wanted to talk a little bit about Alex in general before we get into those kind of specifics. Is this a season where he's got a lot less pressure on his shoulders? Obviously last year he came in, lost his ride before the season had even started. Huge amounts of... Media attention in terms of it was totally forgotten that this was a double world champion that was given a factory Honda seat. It wasn't as if, you know, it was Mark's brother that had never sat in the bike. You know, Alex had been in the paddock for a long time, firmly established his reputation, and then actually was a very impressive Moto2
4: world champion. Yeah, he's in the place that he should have been in in 2020. But the difference now is that, of course, not only does he have one more year of experience, but also I think he's earned that much more credit uh both inside hrc in the paddock with the fans you know i think there's a a genuine view that alex marquez is a rider that has a lot of potential and a lot to show whereas there were stages in moto 2 where you thought okay he's a moto 3 world champion but really has he got it to to cut the mustard you know going up through the classes so uh yeah very curious to see you know what he can do uh, as i mentioned earlier i think paul has more experience um certainly in in forging a team and dealing with somebody of the of mark marcus's status i mean of course alex is his brother but then he still has to you know exist in that shadow uh but you know uh i'm gonna throw my cynicism in here now um but you know elsia honda fantastic lovely team very family orientated Uh, i miss taka nakagami's unveiling because why they did it on a saturday morning i have no idea it's not as if we don't work enough weekends as it is during the year guys and uh, i'm gonna wag my finger as well at the world champion suzuki for lining up their team launch on a saturday um why uh but yeah you know it was um yeah, the L- LCR yeah. <laughs> yeah, LCR Honda um very very interesting. I mean, you know, we're very sad to see Carl Crutchlow dip out uh, a character, uh, you know, a real headstrong racer, such a determined, uh, you know, athlete as well. But they've got a new era starting now after maybe 7 years I think with Carl or 7 or 8 years. Uh so it's um, uh, um six? yeah, 6. Okay. Yeah,
2: 2015. 2015 was his first year because he was in Ducati for 2014, I think. Yeah, one year. One year, got out and then uh, went to LCR and actually did really well. I actually remember the first test when um, uh, speaking to Cal sort of off the record, he sort of motioned me over and uh, uh, after the first test of Valencia and and sort of said, this is the most difficult bike I've ever had to ride. (laughs) And um, he basically said that every single almost every debrief after that as well you know it it never changed and this like to me honestly this is one of the most interesting things that there's so there's an engine freeze this year um which i think is going to be a big deal uh and it's going to make it more interesting normally what honda does is try to find more horsepower um they you know same the Ducati. please sir can i have some more um and every time honda find more horsepower they make the bike worse they you know they make the bike more difficult to handle and mark marquez um finds a way to handle it they didn't have mark marquez this year uh so they had to actually address some of their handling uh issues Uh, we've also seen pictures of uh stefan Bradl with um, uh, quite a different chassis. Uh, uh, you, normally, when I you, normally in pit lane, I remember looking at different ver- the versions of the uh, uh, of the Honda chassis and trying to figure out. You know, I've been told by someone that it was new. Uh, and for the life of me, you know, I couldn't find a difference. Uh, but this one actually, you can actually see there are visible differences. They're playing around with the, uh, with the stiffness. So that they really are, uh, working on the handling of the bike. And I think that's, th- that to me is going to be interesting. I think that's going to have a big, um, uh, going to have a big impact this year for all four bikes. It was also interesting that Takanakagami is on a, is on a 2021 bike, uh, on a full factory bike instead of being on. Like, last year's bike and Nakagami said that that was for him that was a really important difference so yeah that i think is going to be make a difference
1: yeah dave you mentioned the new parts or the new chassis for honda there's actually a really cool video on motogp.com with simon Crafar talking about that so definitely for all our listeners
4: make sure to check that out At- i just want to say that's that's all well and good dave but let's tackle the really important issue here the LCR Honda livery looks very weird with the blue added on. And the Repsol Honda livery, I like it. I like it. I think they've done something very experimental with the pigmentation of the orange as a slight <laughs> variations for what we saw in 2012. Two millimeters. Two millimeters. It's, <laughs> it's risky. It's experimental. Hey, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's right it's out there. It speaks of a wild exciting brand and you know a new chapter so uh do you know
2: what someone said on twitter and i forget who i think a couple of people so um people will have to forgive me for stealing their ideas um but someone said like um uh basically it was like I like the the, the, the livery. Um, why would you change it if you presented it now? Everyone, for the first time, everyone would say, "As oh wow, this is the great, this, this is the best livery I've ever seen." Now I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that because the KTM Tech Three livery is quite obviously the best livery we've ever seen. Um, but the the, the Repsol one it is quite a nice livery. And why would you change it? You don't change it from a marketing perspective because you've invested million, literally millions. Probably by this time was it 25 20 uh, this is the 26th season i think that they're together so that's they must have spent hundreds of millions of euros on this partnership with honda so why would you throw it away by going with you know a, a jackson pollock style um uh, spotted black um uh, picture or uh it, i mean you know it works. Everyone knows Dave, it. Repsol Honda. David
4: Emmett, the conformist. I never <laughs> believe it. Stop
1: the podcast. I was, I was, I was going to say, though, that Dave does have a point though, add where, you know, the brand does become synonymous with the team. And I think very few people would be able to tell you where the team is based. They just assume whatever they want because it's Repsol. They've been together for a very long time. You know, There's a lot of things where with other teams, whenever they change sponsors, you just accept that that's the way it is. Whereas this team, they do really stick together for that length of time and they do become synonymous with one another. But I would agree with you as well. Ad, I don't like the LCR livery. I don't like the blue. I think it looks just, It look, I, I'll wait and see what it looks like on track. But at the launch, I wasn't a fan of it. The blue on the leathers as well. But, you know, it's a tough crowd. Neil, what about you? Uh, we, we haven't heard your thoughts on the livery before moved. we move on He's to <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I
3: thought... Yeah, it was, it was all right. It was kind of average. I thought, you know, without the blue, it probably would have been nicer. A bit of, uh, without the blue, it was more like, uh, you know, nineties rep, uh, Castrol Honda color scheme, which I think was great. Um, but yeah, with the blue on Alex's leathers, it's just a bit of a mismatch. Um, and yeah, Takis looks all right though. You know, nice red, black, gold. Yeah, gold on a motorcycle always looks good when done yeah, tastefully. Tacos. Yeah, d- I I mean, that t- is, that is tasteful.
2: Yeah, the Taka's bike looks better than last year. I mean, last year's looks quite nice, but this year's this year's bike looks really good. I mean, uh, uh, a big fan of it. Uh, the 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 Alex Marquez bike, the the uh, Castrol slash GV bike, um, it looks like a proper privateer bike. It looks like it's you know been plastered in sort of uh, stickers because someone's got uh, sort of a hundred a uh, hundred sponsors who are all paying fifty quid. Um, I so thought it, I saw
4: it. a Moto Matter sticker on the back seat there. <laughs>
2: coincidentally
1: anyone that actually wants to give us 50 quid or 100 quid for a podcast (laughs) feel free to drop us a message to sponsor the show slap a slap a sticker uh, all over it any, anywhere possible at all. Neil, I wanted to ask you a quick question about Nakagami as well. Obviously, we've talked a bit about Alex Marquez. We talked about the pressure that he faced last year. Maybe it's a bit different now this season. But Nakagami was one of the surprise stories of last year. But we did see that he really struggled at a couple of rounds whenever the pressure was on him. If you think back to Aragon, the crash almost seemed inevitable for him after taking that pole position. This year, he does need to really make that next step.
3: He does, yeah. Um, I mean, the next step is, is clearly like a podium finish. Um, and now that he's got the latest bike, it's going to be a little bit more pressure on his shoulders. Um, there's not really going to be any excuses. But, you know, Tackett was, I think, the most improved rider on the grid last year. Um, before that Aragon race, I mean, if he had won the Aragon race that he crashed out of, he still would have been in the championship hunt which is quite re- remarkable really for a guy that i hadn't even really pegged to finish in the top 10 in the championship uh, when the season started maybe even in the top 12 in the championship when the season started so it was uh, it was still quite a remarkable campaign that he put together not always that spectacular but just really consistent and very strong towards the end of races that was uh, one of his big strengths um so yeah it's uh, it's a good platform to to work from um, and it will be interesting to just see how he does deal with that pressure because it hasn't always worked out so well for him in the past whenever the pressure's on. Um, but having Alex Marquez there in the same team, that's going to be a super competitive teammate for him to try and beat. And, um, yeah, when the more you think about it, the more you think LCR have got actually a very, very capable rider lineup this year because I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Alex Marquez was, was back in the podium soon to be honest
4: Uh, i just think you know for attacker the clock is ticking i mean there's three four seasons now in moto gp without a podium finish i think only alesha spargaro has a longer uh, track record or kind of lack of track record really um from the current riders on the grid um you know so questions will be asked of course you know is he there by virtue of the passport or not so you know, I think uh, after the promise he showed in 2020, then, you know, Taka really has to deliver, like you said, Neil, um, you know, having the, sorry, Dave, with the 2021 HRC package. It's now time to deliver. Dave, I'm going to jump in. I know you've got something else you want to talk about, but Adam mentioned
1: the Japanese passport and borrowed time, or the clock's ticking. Is the clock really ticking, though? Because who's the Japanese rider to take that seat right now? He's obviously got the likes of Ayagora coming through, but could you pick a japanese rider to jump
4: onto the onto a a factory motor gp bike right now ad it shouldn't even just be a japanese rider steve i mean i think there's plenty of riders in moto two that would be champion at the bit really to i know it's essentially a team that has good sponsorship from you know from asia but uh you know to have a full factory hrc bike you know i think nakagami
2: has to bring the results for that um yeah I mean Neil is the person to ask for of you know who's going to come up from cuz yeah I think like you look at Moto 3 and there's a bunch of uh, and there's a bunch of Japanese uh, and Asian riders you think yeah that's exciting but Moto 2 n- not quite sure
3: yeah, Agura. I mean, Agura going to be in Model 2 this year. He's probably the one to, to keep an eye on. But, um, yeah, Nagashima fell away badly last year and he doesn't even have a ride this year. So, yeah, I think, uh, you'd have to put your hopes on Agura, maybe Suzuki. Um, if he has a, a championship winning near Model 3, you could see him in, uh, in Model GP in a few years time. But, um, yeah, there's, there's Japan is definitely well represented, but in terms of, um, guys that can eventually make it to Model GP, I'm not so sure.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the role of the Asia Talent Cup. But, I I mean, uh, speaking to to Nakagami um, and listening to him, he was saying that his objective this year is to um, basically fight for the championship, like try to be on the podium every year, uh, uh, every race, Uh, uh, try and get a a, a podium, try and get a victory. Uh, So he's changed. And his weakness, he was he acknowledged that his weakness was he was you know just too slow at the start of the race um and he'd been doing sort of motocross and flat track to try to do that to learn to uh, you know attack from the very start uh this was one of the reasons why Davide chioso uh, entered motocross races because there is no uh the, 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 there's no uh, sort of you know there's no alternative there's no uh, way of finding that rush of adrenaline that you get at the start of a race uh, of, of fear and uh, excitement to you know you can't simulate that you need to you need to actually be in that sort of thing which is why you see so many riders actually you know training together on a, on a bike because they need to you know gee each other up to do that it, it just sounds
4: for me ridiculous to say i want to be in contention for the championship before you've even finished in the top three or you've taken a win um, you know, I think momentum, confidence, all that comes from results. And if you're going into a Grand Prix thinking I finished fourth, I've done well today, okay, you know, I ca- I'll contradict myself by saying, look at Juan Mir, you know, only won one Grand Prix last year, um, you know, in his second year in MotoGP. But you know, I think can we all unanimously agree that you know, Taka has some way to go before he starts talking about being championship potential?
2: But the thing is, I mean, th- the whole point about all top-level athletes, is they're completely delusional. I mean, they have to be completely delusional. They have to believe that they are uh, the best in the world and can win because otherwise they wouldn't, you know, they'd be doing what I did when I was their age, which is going out and trying to drink as much beer as possible and um, uh, and make the acquaintance of fine young ladies.
1: Well, they managed to do all right on that scale, but uh, (laughs) I thought like – just trying to score cheap jokes probably wasn't going to be the best option for those lads. Um, I would say as well though, add uh, that like the one thing about Nakagami is even when you think back to his Moto 2 career, and Neil, I'm sure you remember this, there was that like really brief period in 2012, I think in and around Catalunya Magello, where he really found a vein of form. I think he he had podiums, he was battling at the front on a regular basis for four races in a row, and that's where we saw something really click with him. And we never really saw that come back, but it is there. And I think that, you know, obviously, as Ad says, I think you're you're dead right, Ad, that, you know, he hasn't won a race. He hasn't had a podium. Where does he think this belief in the championship comes from? But MotoGP is in that era where it can click really quickly for you. And a bit like Nakagami back in 2012, if it clicks for him, you can easily get that bit of a run going. And then suddenly the momentum's with you.
4: There's more chance of my football team being promoted to the Premier League than Taka Nakagami winning the World Championship. And being a Queen's Park Rangers fan, everybody knows anything about my club, knows, you know, the kind of relative.
2: i I, I don't i mean i don't think uh, i don't i mean this i don't see him winning a championship either i mean you would have to be fairly delusional to think that but i mean i see absolutely no reason why he can't be on the podium uh, uh, this uh this year um i think winning a race is asking a bit too much just just the competition but the thing is everything is so close it literally is a question of tenths, and so the podium has been within reach and Nakagami showed that he could do that and he's got the the year of experience. I think uh, the pole position in either Aragon or Teruel, whichever one, uh, one of the races at Aragon, yeah. The, the pole position there, crashing out of the lead there, um i think he learned a lot um i think that made uh, an impression and he was you know consistent you saw him actually sort of progressing through the season getting better and better uh, so i think i think there is room for improvement there i mean i still think he's going to um uh, be sort of either third or fourth Honda um, behind Espargaro and Alex Marcus. By the way, Alex Marcus is going to finish ahead of Espargaro. just so you know, um, Adam. Well, um, Dave,
4: you know, just to cut across you there, there's only three spaces on the podium and there's four Honda riders. So, uh,
2: well, you know, the, 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 this is true. They'll, 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 it'll be uh, handed out on a rotating basis. <laughs> 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 they'll, yeah, they'll maybe, maybe he'll just
1: go up to pick up the manufacturer's award ad or something like that. <laughs> um I would say as well that I'd make one recommendation to all of you is don't try and remember the actual Grand Prix. Just always say that race at Motorland or that race at Red Bull Ring or that race at Hareth or, you know, for this year, we're just going to talk about that race in Qatar and then we'll leave it up to everyone else to remember what actually happened. But uh, Dave, you, you mentioned it there. I had already talked about it earlier on about, you know, who's going to finish ahead of each other in the championship. And uh, I'd, I'd like to say that I definitely don't think... Nakagami's going to win the world championship I think anyone that's going to bet on him to win a race is being optimistic but the payout will be big so someone will bet on him to win a race and it is as Dave said that close that it could just take into place I don't think anyone saw what was going to happen at uh, that round in Motorland where he took the pole position you know we didn't expect that so I think that there are you know certain things that can happen during the course of a season that's going to be interesting and could spring a surprise I think for me I'd be surprised if Paul isn't the top non-Mark Marquez Honda rider through the course of this season because he's more experienced than the other guys and he's better than them. You know, We've seen Paul over a prolonged period of time have really strong results. He's got that track record. We're still waiting to see what happens with Alex Marquez in a more typical season and in that second year as well. So I'm definitely going to take Paul in the bet to see who finishes ahead of each other in a championship. What about you, Neil?
3: Uh, Because you've taken Paul, does that mean I can't take Paul?
1: Well, Dave's taken. Dave's taken Alex Marquez.
3: So I have to go attack.
1: Adam's then? taken Paul. You can take. Oh, okay. Well, uh, well no, look, chi- you can take y- Taka chi- if you want. Apparently, he's going to be attacking Nakagami this year, so he could well be <laughs> worth the punt.
3: Well, you know what? I may as well just go all in and say Taka's going to win the championship. If that's the case, you know, he's not just going to be top punter. Yeah, well,
4: what about Stefan Brado you know? Don't forget <laughs> him as well.
3: Oh yeah. What yeah, about if- Davi? I'll go for Bridal,
2: yeah. (laughs) Dovi is not going to be... um, uh, Yeah, um, someone commented to me the other day, the only Honda that... um, uh, the only time that uh, Andre Dovicioso will get anywhere near a Honda is when his rental is a Civic. Uh, so, yeah, there's, um, <laughs> there is no chance that um, uh, that Andrea Dovicioso is going to ride for Honda. Steffi B, uh, our, our beloved Stefan Bradl, is going to do, uh, replace Mark Marquez for as long as um, Mark Marquez is uh, incapable of riding. And once he comes back, Brad will go back to being a test rider. Um, Where do people get civics, Dave? With a rental car, I always end up with a fucking city jet or whatever that little small hatchback's called. I just, I mean, it's cars, mate. So uh, there's no point in asking (laughs) me. It's uh, you know, the 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 boxy thing with too many wheels. Well, Dave, you
1: mentioned earlier on that uh, MotoGP riders and elite sportsmen are all uh, hopelessly delusional about their (laughs) prospects. I actually did have a running order for today's show where I kind of hoped that we'd be able to keep things on schedule. We're way past schedule, but we're going to take an ad break on the Paddock Pass podcast. And when we come back, we've got plenty of questions from our listeners.
0: Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021.
1: Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, like I said, just before the ad break, we've got questions from our listeners. And uh, they're actually questions just from our patrons as well. So at patreon.com forward slash paddockpasspodcast, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. We've got plenty of new patrons this week as well. We've got... We've got Mark Bennett, we've got Ed Farrell, we've got James Smith, we've got Raoul, we've got James, we've got Donald, we've got John Wright. So we've got plenty of people showing interest on the Patreon account. So if you want to make sure you get your questions answered on the Paddock Pass podcast, the easiest way is to uh, pay us money. And uh, that's exactly what a lot of our listeners did. So we've got a question in, guys, from Tip Degner. And... Uh, Tip's been a patron for well over a year and he's asking whether or not we'll see another full carbon chassis in MotoGP. Dave, obviously we saw Ducati experiment with this in the past, but are we going to see something like this again?
2: Um, not for, I mean, you know, never say never, but it's unlikely because everyone is, seems pretty happy with their with their chassis. Um, it's only once a manufacturer feels that they're falling behind Uh, that they need to look at uh, something else or they, they run out of, they reach the limit with their, um, with their current material. What we are seeing is. Almost everyone has moved to a a carbon fiber swing arm. uh, So they're getting a lot of experience with that. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a possibility, but it's, you know, we're not going to see it in the next five years. Maybe, you know, maybe in 10 years when someone runs into a limit or an engineer comes in to replace one of the existing engineers and says, look, I really think we can make this work. I think also time is the factor
4: as well. Uh, you know, the Japanese have extensive experience with aluminium. Uh, someone like KTM have the same depth of knowledge when it comes to steel. So until somebody builds up a bank of knowledge with carbon, then I don't think we're going to see anything replacing them. And I think cost is probably also a factor.
2: I mean, the the, the the advantage of carbon fiber is um, it's m- m- prototyping is much more fast. I mean, it does take uh, time to actually produce a, uh, a carbon fiber chassis, but it takes less long than actually putting an aluminum chassis together. Um, so it's much easier to actually change. And you can actually make um, small, subtle changes more easily just by laying on more um, uh, uh, more material. But I, I actually interviewed, I asked Christian Gabarini, the um, uh, Ducati crew chief, about this. He used to be Casey Stoner's crew chief and is now, um, Pekka Banyai's crew chief. And he said, um, the thing about using carbon fiber is you, or, or any new material, like you were saying, Adam, with a, existing material, you understand it. You've got so much knowledge about how it works. The thing about using a new material is you either get it, you could get it horribly wrong, in which case you play around until you get it right. And that's useful. The worst thing is if you get it, right because you've got something which works but you don't understand why it works so then you try and make a change and if it stops working you've got absolutely no idea what you did wrong so yeah i mean the, the the just the bank of knowledge which you have of the of understanding that's what people are building on this is why we don't see revolution every year we see evolution because you can't just throw away everything that you've learned in the past 20 odd years and start uh, start from scratch
4: good question though
2: Dave, you've uh, you've given us a very easy segue to our
1: next question that came in from Dustin Nisbet-Jones. And uh, Dustin's been a patron since 2019. And he's asking about Casey Stoner. And uh, he wants to know, why exactly is Casey on the sidelines? Why isn't he a test rider anymore? Because we see more and more high-level riders, and Adam mentioned it earlier on, with Cal Crutchlow going to Yamaha rather than racing on. But why is it that uh, Casey found himself on the sidelines, Neil?
3: Um, Well, I think Casey basically had never had really any intention of coming back to race after he retired from racing at the end of 2012. Um, He then took up a a test riding role with Ducati and was their test rider for, I think, three years. Um, And I from what I heard from Ducati, um, whenever that relationship ended, um, Casey had kind of achieved everything that he had wanted to do with Ducati as a test rider. He had no intention to come back as a racer. And he had shown Ducati that he was still, and he had shown the world that he was still. One of the fastest guys in the world. He didn't need to have extensive experience on a bike. He could just show up at Sepang in January after months of, of not riding and still be among the fastest guys on MotoGP machinery, which was just insane. Um, so I think that was, um, that was one of the things he felt that he had just accomplished all the he really wanted to accomplish as a test rider um, and you know I don't think um, Casey has to worry about the financial side of, of things anymore after a very long and successful career in Grand Prix racing well maybe not long but very successful um, and then also last year he opened up and spoke quite a bit at the end of 2020 about um, the uh, this uh, chronic uh, fatigue uh, illness that he's been suffering from um, and he said that it's, it's basically I think it, he noticed um, his body deteriorated in quite a bit through uh, 2020 um, and he said something along the lines of he wakes up in the morning with about 50% uh, energy. Um, anytime he goes training, he feels really, really tired. Um, and it's, it's quite a serious thing. I mean, he seems like he's quite concerned by it. Um, so whether physically at this moment, Casey could go back and then start training again, uh, you know, I mean, be a, a test rider at Sepang in, in fearsome heat. Um, I don't think he's really in a physical shape to do that either. Um, so yeah, I would say there's, a, there's a whole host of things. I don't think he wants to do it anymore. Um, and physically, you know, he's, he's quite, a far way away from uh, being in peak physical condition.
1: We've got a question in from Papa Pepe as well, and uh, definitely don't want to have to say that one five times in a row. He's been a (laughs) patron for over a year, and uh, he's asking us what one rule change would we like to see, given how the technical regulations have shifted in MotoGP. He's saying that he'd love to see it where they opened up the engine configurations to allow back in V5s. Personally, I'd love to see us go back to having a tyre war but uh, for each of you, what would you like to see, Dave?
2: Uh, I like the rules. Um, uh, they're working really, really well, so I wouldn't like to see any changes. Um, uh, I mean, the thing is, engineers like like the restrictions as well because it gives them a chance to try and find how they can bend them, break them uh, without actually breaking the rules. Uh, it challenges them to find a difference uh you know it, it finds them it challenges them to find ways around uh, the, the, the problems that they're facing in fact i wrote a piece for adam's on track off road saying while i thought yamaha were going to do really well what they learned from last year from their disastrous last year with uh, uh you know basically having to do a season on two or three engines um was that actually these bike these engines are actually pretty good and they they They've learned a lot about how to manage the, uh, the engines, how to make them more reliable, how to get more horsepower or more performance out without, without stressing them. So yeah, I mean, for me the rules are actually working and if you open up if you open up engines then the people with the deepest pockets win and if you have a tire war uh then the teams with the favored uh tire manufacturer uh, wins um so yeah you have external factors what we have now is a level playing field and i like it
4: what about you ad um yeah, thanks for the plug Dave. I'll uh, I'll throw the bonus cash over uh, <laughs> later on. Um for me it's the aero. I mean, I know there's uh you know there's a degree of lenience anyway with the aero packages the teams can have. I mean, it's all got rather similar over the last couple of years, but um you know, uh Dawna and FIM have a, this kind of templated uh structure or cut out that each bike has to pass through. Um, but I'd like to see that, you know, thrown away. Um, let's see what kind of weird and outlandish ideas the, the, the factories can come up with to maximize downforce even further and, you know, really change the, the visual face of MotoGP. That'll be quite cool to see. Even though it'd be, so it'd be really expensive. I mean, it would be like a wind, a wind tunnel war, but.
2: Yeah, given the reactions to um, any mention of wings on social media, Adam, you can expect a large crowd of people with uh, to, with pitchforks and torches outside of your house in Barcelona <laughs> within, the, within also, a, in about half an hour.
4: On, on a technical side, um, you know, I mean, maybe the difference perhaps is negligible. If you speak to any riders or technicians, they might argue uh, in reverse. But suspension, I mean, the whole grid is Olin's, apart from KTM using WP. I wonder if, um, you know, the suspension war is something that could develop over the next couple of years, uh, especially in off-road. We're seeing the resurgence of the air shock um you know and to be honest WP are keeping quite tight lips about that they're not talking about it in supercross and motocross and um you know I think there's a kind of potential there at least speaking to some of the KTM uh engineers about how it could work in road racing because it's a more controlled environment obviously off-road you have a, a myriad of conditions uh soil dirt stones whatever else that could wreck the system but in road racing it could be something that's um quite Uh, you know advantageous Uh, let's see if that comes up in the next year or two
1: Neil obviously last week you said that you wanted to see a rule where all the manufacturers had to change their liveries every week (laughs) every every year sorry Um, but uh, this is where you can actually do something for the technical regs what's the one change you'd see
3: Yeah, you know, I'm going to be really boring here and just borrow a little bit of David's answer and then borrow a little bit of Adam's answer. Like, I think David's absolutely right in that the rules are, as you know, are are basically contributing to the spectacle that we have. It's great that we don't have um basically unlimited input from the factories into the uh, the electronics package um i think that's led to the closeness of the racing that we've had i think the control tires that we've had which also you mentioned steve uh, i think you know Michelin's control tires has led to wonderful spectacle over the last couple of years um but i also kind of agree with adam i wish that they would open up the aerodynamics rules just a little bit um and rather than just being allowed to change the fairing and and sort of winglet package yeah just let it just let them do whatever they want with it um you know it doesn't have to fit a kind of standard normal shape of a motorcycle um yeah just go wild with that design um and maybe limit it to one or two updates through the year but yeah i want the bikes looking a bit more radical than they do now
1: Neil wants sidecars to come into MotoGP. We've got uh, a question as well from Will Brapp. Will's actually been a patron of ours since we set up the Patreon accounts. So that's about three years ago. And he's asking, Neil, how concessions are going to work in uh, 2021. So for Aprilia, they're obviously one of the teams that are the only team that still has concessions available to them. How are they going to be able to develop their bike? And uh, we obviously saw that they were out testing last week already in Jerez.
3: Yeah. I mean, Aprilia are now the only factory that still has concessions available. So they still have, I think, unlimited testing um, and they are not restricted to um, the engine freeze uh, over this year. So they can basically work on their engine from 2020 and update that for 2021. Uh, KTM now have lost all their concessions. However, there was one interesting loophole in that their engine development wasn't completely frozen from 2020 into 2021 and they have therefore been able to alter their engine ever so slightly they were trying to play it down um just how much they've they've kind of changed the engine but there's definitely been some improvements there um pit prior was being a bit tight-lipped with regards to that um so that's going to be interesting but yeah Aprilia are basically the only factory Um, still with unlimited testing still with a higher number of engines i think over a full season than the other manufacturers and um, yeah they're basically allowed to develop their engine and ktm were allowed to develop their engine but they're not allowed to do the other things anyway so
2: and if um, uh, any manufacturer um, goes for a whole season without getting a podium Uh, than they would gain concessions but um right now i mean honestly all five manufacturers which uh, uh, the non concessions manufacturers ducati suzuki yamaha ktm honda uh you know they're all going to get on a on a podium there's there's no chance of them not getting a podium so um, i don't think that's going to happen
1: yeah and obviously aprilia still with plenty of work to do to catch themselves up um that brings us to the end of this week's show. Obviously, we've uh, kind of shoehorned in the Q&A at the end of uh, today's show, but hopefully for our patrons, they've been able to get something useful from that. So for anyone that wants to become a patron, like I said, go to patreon.com forward slash paddockpasspodcast. And for $3 a month, you can support the podcast. You can also drop us a message at pod or you can message any of us directly or tweet any of us directly with your questions. Just before we leave, Adam, obviously you've got a new magazine out, just basically round around the same time that the pod's going to drop. So uh, you'll be able to get a few days off now for uh, the next while.
4: Uh, yeah, sort of, Steve. Um yeah, I mean, as soon as we close this show, I'm going to be uh, getting the, the uh, second issue of the year out. So um, yeah, go and have a go and have a check out. Got two plugs in one show. I'm really feeling very uh, fortunate today. Cheers, guys.
1: Now, with well, your back as a regular now, ads, so we have to do our best for that. Um, Dave, obviously, you've been able to get something shoved up your nose as well lately. Uh,
2: yes, I have. Yes, yeah, I'm um, uh, going back to the UK to see my uh, uh, to see my mother. Uh, see how she's getting on and so i got to uh go for a little bit of a cycle ride and have a nice lady shove um uh, shove a swab up my nose and down my throat oh i'll tell you what you know how to have a good time <laughs> uh, neil
1: um what about you you're just going to stay in your padded style for another week
3: yeah pretty much um i've got uh yeah nothing really to report coming up i must say over the next coming weeks we've got what i think a week and a half until qatar gets underway testing yeah yeah, so I mean,
2: basically, like, next week we can start to talk about the Qatar test, uh, look looking forward to it, and, and a week later we can actually talk about people having ridden motorbikes, which is um, uh, quite an exciting prospect.
1: Yeah, it is always fairly good that instead of like what we had this time last year, we suddenly had to start thinking about shows to try and make it through lockdowns. At least now we do have the prospect of the Qatar test coming up. And no doubt Dave's excited about that. Adam's excited about that. I'm excited about that. I'm not so sure Neil you're looking forward to a month in Qatar.
3: <laughs> I'm not going to the test thankfully so it's just going to be 13 days in Qatar. I've uh, I've dodged the proverbial bullet on that one. So uh, yes, you can hear my deep sigh of relief uh, right here on the pod.
1: Th- 13 days <sighs> unlucky for some Neil. <laughs> And uh, unlucky for us really because we want to look forward to your insight no doubt though we'll all be able to keep ourselves very much up to date on what's going on in the Qatar test so as David said on next week's show we're going to be able to look forward to the Qatar test and uh, bikes being back out on track so for myself Steve English from David Emmett from Adam Wheeler and from Neil Morrison big thank you to everyone for listening to this week's Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. This episode of the Paddock Pass
0: podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberties. All inquiries can be
2: sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.